Um, we began last week with uh, reviewing and finishing up uh, Revelation, general Revelation and special Revelation. Uh, does anybody remember? Uh, does anybody remember uh, general Revelation? How would somebody describe general Revelation? And what would be a text that you would uh, attach to it? Or text, plural. You can take a shot. General Revelation. Okay. No, that's Romans 1. But that's, that's a perfect one. So Tina said uh, exactly right that it's that information about God, that's general information about God available to all people in all places at all times equally. Um, some text that would go with that would be Romans 1.18 negatively in terms of general revelation as a means of condemnation. Positively, uh, Psalm 19.1 in terms of general revelation as a means of worship in the hearts of those who have uh, regenerate hearts who are alive to God. And of course that is taken throughout uh, Scripture. Special revelation. Uh, who would want to take a shot at defining special revelation? And maybe a text. Can, can be simple. Janice? Okay, so she said that scriptures, when God speaks directly to a specific group of people. Okay, and uh, First, Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is uh, given by inspiration or God breathed. Uh, yes. Now, special revelation would be larger than Scripture. It would culminate in the written word, which we'll look at today. But it's bigger. It would be dreams and visions that God gave in the Old Testament, and some in the New Testament. It would include theophanies and Christophanies that we looked uh, mentioned. So it would include angelic visitors, such as came through to Daniel, which ended in the written word, but it included in that specific instance something uh, other than the written word, namely what came to him by the angel, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, it culminates in the written word. In other words, God writing down his revelation, preserved and kept for his people uh, for all times, that becomes uh, the primary expression of God's special revelation. Uh, in sense of its continuation, the, the ultimate expression of God's uh, revelation would be who? Right, so I gave that away, who, not what. Uh, it would be Christ. It would be, he is the one who revealed God. He exegeted God, uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, through his humanity. But even for us, here, now, we have that knowledge of the incarnated incarnate word and his revelation of the father in a book we have it written for us we weren't with him we didn't walk with him we didn't see touch hear, and handle him as the apostles did and so we have even that revelation uh, for us written in a book uh, that will change of course when we get to heaven uh, no longer will it be will we be separated 
by sight, but in his presence, uh, we will see his glory and gaze upon him. Uh, Heaven, let me just make a footnote there. You know, the intermediate state isn't technically heaven. Heaven is ultimately referring to the new heavens and the new earth in a resurrected body when we're with the Lord. So we are, do see the Lord in that intermediate state when someone dies, but actually heaven would be uh, that fullness when the completeness of God's redemptive work has been realized and we're with him forever in new resurrected bodies in his presence before the Father and Christ and the Spirit. But yes, when we do die and are with him, then we see him uh, face to face, uh, as it were. So that's general revelation and special revelation, uh, broadly uh, speaking. Now, as Tina mentioned, we need special revelation to know specific truths about God. Not only that God exists, but what, what, is, uh, what else can be said about this God who exists, other than that he is powerful, other than that he is wise, that he is strong, and so on. Uh, we learn specifically that he is a triunity, that he exists as Father and Son and Spirit. We would not get that from general revelation. And we would not understand specifics about how our world came to be what it is, including nations, sin, uh, male and female. All of those things are explained to us uh, by virtue of special revelation. And, of course, everything else that unfolds out of that. So we need special revelation to have specific information about God, ultimately in terms of redemption, in terms of redemption, in terms of what his plans are in calling men and reconciling them to himself uh, through Christ. But there was a significant change that took place in the history of God's people. Remember, stop me at any time if you want. But there is a significant change that took place in the history of God's people after his deliverance of them from Egypt into the land of Canaan. And what was that change with Joshua? We see some, something said there that could not have been said prior uh, to that time. Actually having written scriptures. Meditate on this word. You shall not deviate from the right or the left. You shall do all according to what is written. You shall meditate on this law day and night. That be introduced a significant shift in how God communicated his will to his people. It was now written in a book. That had not, was not the case in the, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob with Joseph and those who went into Israel. And during their time, or excuse me, Egypt, and those uh, who were in Egypt, they did not have the written word. They had the oral word. They had what was passed down through their generations, which was accurate, uh, as far as we know, and at least in its basic content. Uh, that is, that God of the universe had entered into a covenant with his people, they, and they were identified by that covenant uh, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. But they did not have the written word. But when God delivered them out, he took them to Sinai. He revealed the law through Moses. And then that word was written down. And Moses gave instructions even in the law in Deuteronomy that the king was to make copies of this. He was to know this law. It was to be the rule and the standard by which the people of God were governed and ruled. Of course, they didn't have a king then. That would come later. That was a prophetic uh, instruction. But that was to be how God communicated his will to his people. In fact, all of the prophets are essentially 
prophesying off the foundation of the law. Either their disobedience to the law or their his, a call to obey the law. So the law was foundational uh, to the history of Israel. But the shift there that we would note is just that the word was now written and God is always pointing them back to the written word. So that takes a place of primacy in terms of God revealing himself to men. And in terms of God communicating his will to men, communicating his promises to men, communicating his warnings and his instructions to his people. It is the written word of God. And that is why the godly in Psalm 1, Psalm 1 delight in God's law. They meditate in it day and night. Um, in Psalm 19, it said, The word of God, the law of the Lord, is something uh, that is precious to the redeemed sinner. And furthermore, and importantly, it is the measure by which all other truth claims are to be, or it is the standard by which all other truth claims are to be measured. Isaiah 8, for example, he says this, uh, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So any new revelation that would supposedly come from a so-called prophet or whoever is always to be measured against the word of God. Always to be measured against that written word of God. Uh, his word is eternal. It is forever settled in the heavens according to Psalm 19. So it's, and it's powerful unto salvation. So we're going to look at some of those things more specifically. But having introduced the concept of revelation, uh, we want to turn our attention this morning to the written word, to that written revelation. And then we will talk about inspiration, canonization, and transmission down the road. Let's consider first then the primacy of the written word. In other words... The wisdom of God is wonderfully manifest in the fact that he has given us truth that can be written down, was written down, and was preserved. Let me give to you just several advantages and demonstrations of the wisdom of God in giving us the written word. The written word. One is the written word can be studied and examined closely. It can be studied and examined Closely. In 2 Timothy, he says this, 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And interestingly, he says that in the context of discerning the empty chatter between the empty chatter and worldly chatter that leads to further ungodliness, and he goes on. In other words... Know accurately the written word of God. By an accurate knowledge of the written word of God, then you can discern between error. You can discern between what is righteous, what is unrighteous, what is true, what is error, what is light, what is darkness, and so forth. It is by knowing uh, the written word of God. It can be studied. It can be examined. It can be discussed. It can be turned over in your mind. It can be looked at. That is an extremely important aspect of the written word. In 4.13 of that same letter, you'll remember that Paul said to Timothy, 
Uh, when, now, Paul, these are essentially the uh, last words that we have of Paul uh, to Timothy. And he's near the end of his life. And he says in verse 13, when you come, visit him in prison. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments, which are most clearly a reference to scriptures. Paul, in his last dying days, wanted the word of God to consider, to read, to think over, to study. He wanted them near him. So that is a precious truth. Secondly, they are accessible to more people. Written down, the word of God is accessible to more people. Now, I wrote down Nehemiah 1.8, um, just as one, one example of that. Uh, we'll look at some others uh, in these other points. But Nehemiah 1.8 uh, says this, or uh, Nehemiah, excuse me, 8, 1 through 8. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8. This is where all of the people gathered together in the square, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law to Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Actually, this could illustrate a few points. Uh, then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and all who could listen with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then he goes on, he read it, and he explained it, and uh, so forth. The point there is that because this written word had been kept, it could now be read and be available through this reading, in this case through this reading, uh, to more people. It made it accessible to more people um, because it could be kept and read and preserved. Now, this isn't in your notes, but let me make just one uh, mention f- uh, four, four other uh, aspects, which will kind of overlap with some of these other points, but four of the written word. These come from a man by the name of Van Til, uh, writing on Scripture. Uh, in referencing special revelation and its necessity, and particularly the written word. Uh, here's four, four uh, necessary aspects of the written word that are uh, for our benefit. One is that it remains through the ages. It remains through the ages. It's kept, it's preserved. We see an example of that in Nehemiah. That we just read. In other words, that word that was written previously was kept and available to future generations. And indeed, beyond Nehemiah, uh, even to this day. It might, so that it would remain through the ages. So that it could reach all mankind. There is, there is a, uh, an ability to disseminate the written word that would not be possible if it were only, for example, spoken through oral tradition. That it might be offered to men objectively. In other words, something as Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy 2.15, something written can be studied, it can be considered objectively. Uh, It's not merely ideas or tradition. It is a written word that can be looked at, examined in its grammar, in its context, in its language, and so forth. It can be offered to men objectively. In other words, sometimes maybe when you witness, if you have, I mean, we have hopefully what's in our mind that we can use, but then a better scenario is when you can actually sit down with someone and show them and say, these are not simply my ideas, these are not my words, this is what is written. 
and have them look through the scriptures, you can explain context. Say, read the chapter. Let's understand the context. In other words, that can happen because of the written word. Fourthly, he mentions this. One, that it might remain through the ages. It can reach all mankind. It can be offered to men objectively. And that it can have the testimony of its truthfulness within itself. Scripture, as you've heard, is the best witness of Scripture. Scripture validates Scripture. It's internal coherence. It's prophetic aspect. It's unity, which would go with coherence, but it's unity uh, that you read Scripture with such a vast span of diversity in terms of authors, culture, context, even language. And yet, when you read Scripture, you read Scripture as though it were written with one voice. Because though it comes through the mediation, as it were, of human authors, through their personality, through their intellect, through their experience, through their context, it yet is by inspiration of God, so that is the Holy Spirit recording His Word through these men. And so these are things that can be shown because of the written Word can be viewed in its expanse. Imagine if you did not have the written Word and you tried to do that. Well, now you're trying to just from memory and from explanation cover all 66 books of the Bible, that would be uh, unreasonable to think that that would be effective. But when you have the written word, you have now this ability to examine all of that in detail um, and to show the truthfulness that it displays in and of itself. So those are the four. It might remain through the ages, reach all mankind, be offered to men objectively, and have the testimony of its truthfulness within itself. Uh, let's go down to the third point here, is that it can be, the written word can be preserved and protected. And we're going to talk about that a bit when it comes to transmission of Scripture, which is a glorious, glorious thing to study and gives us absolute confidence in God's providential preservation of His word. But it can be preserved and protected. I'm just mentioning these briefly here. Uh, one example of this is in 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22. You'll be familiar with this uh, incident. 2 Kings 22. In 2 Kings 22, Josiah is now king. Josiah was a good king of Israel. And, but when he's a good king, he's coming off bad kings uh, of Judah. Excuse me, I said Israel, of Judah. And... So they're not in a good place spiritually as a nation. And Josiah, uh, in the sight of wanting to do right in the eyes of God, he told the, he has them do work on, in the first few verses, work on the temple, bringing it back up to par. It had fell into uh, disrepair. And so while they're working on the temple, it says in verse 8 that Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, that's big news. Why? What do you have to be to be found? Lost. They did not have the word. In other words, the written word of God, the law of God, and everything written to that point had not been the governing the spiritual direction of the nation, right? It was lost. It was not a part of their life. It was not something that they were referring to, uh, that they were coming up under. So the fact that he found the word uh, is significant. It was lost. 
uh, this was a big deal. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, Fon, and who read it? Shaphan the scribe gave to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, uh, so forth, verse 10. Uh, and Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Akabor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, I should have skipped over that verse. Verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judea concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written in it. And then, of course, then we know the reforms that came as a result of that. The point is simply to say that the written word was preserved and protected. So though the nation in this case the tribe of Judah particularly, had neglected the word of God, had set it aside, as it were, because it was written, because it was kept, because it was in the temple of the Lord, it was preserved, it was protected. And so when it was rediscovered under the providence and the providence of God, it then could come to bear weight as the revelation of God to his people once again, because it was preserved and it was protected. So, had the word not been written down, what would the scenario have been? Well, likely there was nobody there that was passing this down faithfully through oral tradition uh, and such. It would have been lost. But because the word was written, it was preserved and protected. So, it is a glorious truth that God has written his word in a book. Uh, just one other example, uh, briefly, and we'll, we'll talk more about this down the road. But, uh, well, I'll just mention it here. Uh, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, was a tremendous preservation of uh, God's word. In this, in this sense, is how I'm using it here. In that, it gave testimony to God faithfully preserving His word. Now, we'll talk about that more under transmission in some detail. But uh, here, I would just mention that. Uh, Again, because it is written, was preserved, in this case, through that community, uh, we have manuscripts that are beneficial to us in building confidence and having understanding uh, of that which was handed down and passed down to us. Uh, third, or fourth, it can be disseminated. Uh, it can be disseminated over large areas. Now, I put 1 Thessalonians 5.27 there simply for this reason. Uh, now, well... For this reason, he says, have this letter read in other places, basically in other churches, in other places. Uh, so, because this letter was written, delivered to the church at Thessalonica, that letter could then be taken to other churches. So, the truth that was contained into it was not confined to the area of Thessalonica, but could expand beyond those borders into regions uh, far beyond their normal reach uh, to be read and learned from. We can think of Gideon Bibles placed in hotel rooms. People have gotten saved from those Bibles. Uh, and, and many other ways. You can think of... Well, I'll just go in. Because well, it'll come up in other... It can penetrate areas that otherwise would have been uh, closed to the Word of God. There was a Voice of the Martyrs uh, has this one little video thing of a man who his mission... His mi 
ministry is to take Bibles and these little radio transmitters and he, dr- he flies over the jungles of Colombia where the drug lords and such are, uh, basically an inaccessible area to, to most people. Uh, and he drops Bibles and transmit, and people get saved out of this. How could you do that if the word weren't written down? You see, I'm just, I think, and this is just unfolding the wisdom of God in the written word. And I'm going to have to speed up here a little bit. Uh, you think of uh, Bibles smuggled into closed countries. Uh, an example that came to my mind this morning as I was thinking over some of these things was Corrie ten Boom. There was a story of when she was in, uh, put into one of the prison camps or one of these confinements. I guess it was prison uh, camp. But uh, she had smuggled in and God preserved that she could keep. Do you remember? Uh, was it a whole Bible or was it a part? I couldn't remember. Does anybody? But anyway, it was a part of the scriptures if it wasn't the whole scriptures, a copy. I don't, I don't remember in a most unusual way, and the Lord allowed that, and that Bible was, became uh, a source of great instruction and encouragement to those who were in that place, both in their giving it to those whom maybe the Lord was drawing to himself and for the Christians themselves. Uh, that couldn't happen if it were not written down. Uh, that would be impossible. Uh, that said, the last point, Scripture then is the primary way God has revealed himself. And I'm going to just mention this quickly. Scripture is, in 2 Timothy 3.15, the power of God unto salvation. In John 17.17, 17, uh, unto sanctification. And it's the standard by which all claims would be measured. We've already mentioned that. Let me move on. So that is the written, the written word of God. And why it's very important that it was written down. Um... Now, so Scripture is the sole authority and the source of all study of God. Not, and dot, dot, dot. And so now here are some things that are uh, attempts essentially to pervert that pure revelation of God to us in Scripture. And so uh, I only have about 17 minutes, so I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Um, and this is only meant really to be uh, sort of suggestive. Uh, not in suggestive ideas that you haven't heard of or that aren't clear, but in terms of um, they're not, these could all in and of themselves be their own area of discussion that we could expand on. I'm, I'm just mentioning them to put them into our mind, a way to think about uh, some of these things that would seek to lessen the authority of God's word. But before I do that, uh, we can see the importance of clarity uh, on, in God's, of God's word and absolute trust through Satan's attempt to constantly distort it. And, now, and these are all essentially attempts to do that. When Satan came first to Eve, what was the first thing he tried to distort? Well, it wasn't God's written word, but it was... Yeah, didn't God say? Didn't God say? He sought to pervert that. That was where his attack lied. It's where it focused. Now, ultimately, yes, he was getting her to question the goodness and the character of God, but his road to do that was through what God said, seeking to pervert it. He wanted to prevent, to attack the sufficiency and trustworthiness of his word. Now, a common way in which Satan does this is not by outright denial. That's, of course, part of it, but it's not by outright denial. One of his most effective perversions of God's word is through the perversion of addition. Addition. Addition that, in net effect, leads to subtraction. In other words, it takes away from the fullness and the sufficiency of God's word. But 
his tool to do that is through addition, through adding to what God has said. Um, Not by saying that you should do away with God's word altogether, but that it needs to be revised, amended, or qualified by something else. So let's look at just a few ways that he uh, has has, um, done that. First of all, that first slide there, is through scripture and experience. Scripture and, and experience. So you'll notice all of these are scripture and. Scripture plus. Scripture plus experience. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. This has always uh, been the case. Uh, so in one example there, uh, let's see, uh, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. So we're already in the Old Testament. We could look at that. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. We won't look at all those that are listed there. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4 says this. And again, I'll read it just because it's, uh, you need it on the microphone. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning which the Lord uh, spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or of that dreamer or dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, i.e., read into that, that are written for you in the law, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. So, in other words, there is some kind of experience that is produced and had by these dreamer of dreams, these other prophets, that is meant in this context to lead away from what has clearly been written in the law of Moses. Uh, It is a a uh, attempt to lead away from the clear statements of the written word of God. Uh, this could let me do just mention one other one because this goes with that Colossians two eighteen. Uh, again, you might be thinking of other texts, uh, but I'm going to mention Colossians two eighteen. He says this. <clears throat> Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stands on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And he goes on. So part of what was going on here in the Colossians are those who claimed some kind of special knowledge. Uh, In this case, knowledge that came through the experience of a vision, that came through some angelic mediation. In other words, some experience that could not be validated that claimed to have extra information or revelation. And Paul is saying, don't be, don't be distracted by that. Don't be taken by that. Hold firm to what you have been given uh, by apostolic witness. So this can come in the form of visions, angelic visitations, personal experience, other world realities... Uh, and so on. What are the problems with experience? Let me just list through these. does not come with its own interpretation. Uh, It's just an experience. What does it mean? Uh, Where did it come from? Uh, How am I to understand that? Uh, It does not come with its own interpretation. It cannot be verified, examined, or contradicted. It cannot be verified, examined, or contradiction. If we are well familiar with what happens in much of charismania, these... Outlandish things can be said, and who can contradict it? I saw last night an angel came and spoke to me, and he revealed to me. I wasn't there. 
I can't say what you did, did or didn't. God does have angels. You see, it can't be, it can't be uh, contradicted uh, in that sense. It, somebody's experience then becomes for them their own authority. And that's the issue. Uh, it fails to account for false experience and deception. And again, I'm going through these very closely. Um, one example is Daniel. Let me just back up. Uh, Dan doesn't come with its own interpretation. Daniel 9 is an illustration of this. He was perplexed over the meaning of the vision. He didn't have it, remember? And then he had prayed that God would reveal to him what all that means. God sent an angel and explained it to him. Uh, that, that would be an example uh, there. Uh, if you wanted to write down a text that cannot be verified, examined, or contradicted, we won't turn there. Second Chronicles 18.23. Uh, fails to account for a false experience or a deception. Uh, one example there, again, we're gonna, I'm going to run through these quickly. Second Corinthians 11.14. Uh, who appears as an angel of light? Satan appears as an angel of light. Uh, the point is... Um, if experience itself becomes its own self-attesting validation, it becomes its own authority, what do you have outside of that experience by, that can shine light on it, that can be a discerning factor? Uh, that's essentially what Paul is saying. Is uh, Satan can come to you as an angel of light and these false teachers. In that case, denying Paul's ministry uh, and, and other things. But... The point is, is that there is an authoritative word that has come to God that all of that is to be measured by. In this case, the true apostolic witness. Uh, the, we, could, we could say also the written word. Uh, it fails to differentiate between modes of the Spirit's work. Uh, in other words, between illumination and revelation would be one example of that. Uh, and it ultimately trumps the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Ultimately, uh, trumps the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, and what else? Here are some results of that. These aren't listed. Let me just give them to you. It opens up the mind to error and deception by removing the protective grid of truth. Uh, Ephesians 4.16 would be one example. 1 Timothy 4.15, 2 Timothy 4.1-6 would all be examples of that. It increases the chances of spiritual deception in regard to salvation... By substituting repentance from sin with experience. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Didn't we do cast out demons and have this and I'll say you didn't do, you didn't do the will of my Father who's in heaven. Their experience trumped the reality of a righteous life. Right? So it lead, led to deception about their own salvation. Uh, that would be one example. It cuts off a regenerate Christian from the true source of sanctification by removing them from the written word. How do we grow? 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, through the, the word, which teaches, instructs, reproves, corrects, and trains the man in righteousness, that he may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, a fourth is it destroys the testimony of the church to the world by substituting her true salt and light, holiness and truth, with a distorted view of Christianity that perverts the message and lacks holiness, which we've seen largely, again, it, just because it is such a dominant reality, it's, it's happened in, throughout church history, but with uh, much of what goes under the umbrella of charismatic, charismania. But again, it's not only limited to them. It, that could even fall under the categories of those who, well, this passage to me means. 
In other words, I have some experiential connection with this passage divorced from its objective revelation and meaning of it that can be gained by study and consideration. Uh, I now have this existential, this outside experience with the word that then becomes truth. It becomes in itself uh, something that validates it. But that's something that's personal. It's not objective. It's not authority tied to the written word of God. Um, the only experience that is ultimately validated is what is tied to the fruit of truth and regeneration. In other words, it can be tied to Scripture. It, it uh, coalesces with, it corresponds to Scripture, and it produces the fruit of righteousness, uh, is the idea. That's an experience that is validated by what it produces. It agrees with Scripture, and it produces a life of righteousness. So there's a whole lot that could be said about that. Mysticism is essentially the idea of having unmediated uh, experience with God. Where you step outside of what is the normal realm of objective, verifiable. And the mystics in the Catholic Church did that. You now are going up and you have these visionary experiences of God that are unmediated, really by scripture. They're private to that person. And so... Another, scripture and a tradition. Scripture and tradition. That's another addition. So the first one is the idea of experience or mysticism that somehow divorced from the word, I experience something that is essentially private, and that then becomes an authority that is above the written word, or at least equal to, which then means above. Scripture and tradition is another one. Uh, tradition itself, of course, is not bad. Uh, the word there translated tradition uh, means simply this, and I'm quoting a lexicon here, a giving over which is done by word of mouth or in, uh, a giving over of, of which is done by word of mouth or in writing, tradition by instruction, narrative, or precept, and so on. Some, basically something that's handed down. By itself, it's not bad. Just to give you a few examples, these aren't up there. 1 Corinthians eleven two, Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, he says uh, the same thing. Now, we don't have time. I had here some questions that would be fun to discuss in terms of what are some of the traditions in the church that we can think of that are good and what are some of the traditions we can think of that are not good and what are some of the traditions uh, that we can think of that were good but have become bad? That started out good, but they've had come to have a negative influence uh, on the church. Well, we don't have time for that. I, I think I spent too much time on the first slide. But those are, those are things to consider. Traditions in and of themselves are not bad. Uh, they can be good, they can be bad, or they can be good and become bad because they're used with, in a wrong way. Um, we can think of that in terms of just how a, uh, a church service is structured or whether you have uh, a special Christmas service or not and how details of that are carried out. It's like that's not, uh, that's not something that God has given us direct commandment on and so we want to be careful there. Uh, tradition takes on its own authority then that is imposed upon Scripture in validating Scripture. Matthew 5, 1 through 9. Uh, by your traditions, you have invalidated the Word of God. And that can happen in a variety of ways. 
And what is so very important to remember in terms of Christ saying that, and we, we just forget that. We have to kind of go back into their context and hear what's being said uh, by Christ and, and to think about what they're hearing and how they're taking this in. These oral traditions, these things that were added by the rabbis and scribes throughout the ages, were given to glorify, in their mind, to glorify God and protect the truthfulness of His Word. You see, they weren't given to supplant His Word. That not, was not their thinking. They were not thinking consciously, I'm taking this tradition and it now becomes more important. They were thinking, I'm protecting, I'm preserving God's glory and God's truth. But what happened is those things came to take on a level of authority and importance that was essentially became something that invalidated Scripture. In that case, even like the washing of hands or traditions of washings of hands. So that's something that became more important than showing mercy, exercising justice, so on and so forth. Uh, tradition isolates authority to a select group. So the example of John 9 there on your notes is at the end of the blind man being healed and they have this whole discussion about who healed him and so on. Do you remember what they said? They said at the end of that this really incredibly... You know, just shockingly honest uh, statement. And really, you read through that. I did recently, and you just... Uh, really quite an amazing passage. Uh, one thing that stands out is that they are consistently confronted with this verifiable, undeniable truth that they simply will not believe. They simply refuse to acknowledge it. They call in... The witness of others and the blind man, they call in his parents, and it's continually testified to them that this man was blind and he was healed by Jesus. They are settled, they will not accept it. And at the end of it, they're basically at their wit's end, they have nothing else that they can say, but they are determined to vilify Jesus and to not acknowledge this miracle that was done. And so here's their final response that they blurt out. Uh, they say this, verse 34, to this blind man who basically is confronting them and saying, well, this is an amazing thing that he opened my eyes and you don't know who he is, you leaders of Israel. And this is their response to that. You were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us? And then they said back in verse 28, we, you are his disciple, speaking of Jesus, the blind man, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. Now the point there is simply to say this. They had isolated the authority and the knowledge of God's word to themselves. Which to them in their mind included the rabbis and the traditions and such that were handed down. Um, thirdly, traditions tends to establish a pseudo-righteousness. Romans 10. Uh, again, look at all of those verses. But Romans 10. Uh, neglecting the righteousness of God, they've established their own righteousness Right, which was essentially what? Their obedience to all of these traditions and all of these things that were handed down through the oral law. This uh, is what makes self-righteousness so dangerous because it comes so often under the guise of commitment and diligence and vigor for the things of God. That's what makes it so blinding. I wish we could spend a whole lot more time on this, but this is very serious. It is an addition to the word of God. If God has not said it clearly by precept and command, we are not to make something else that level. 
God has revealed things that are very clear by precept and command. He's also revealed much to us that is by principle, that can have a variety of applications. The best way I've heard it explained is this way. Um, When application comes to the level of righteousness, that is where we just cross the line. When my application of Scripture, or as a church, we apply Scripture in a certain area that is not directly clear uh, from, from Scripture, then we have just crossed a line. So, for example, uh, it is righteousness whether your skirt is two inches above the knee or one inch below the knee. That is not the sum total of modesty, that discussion. Do you see the point? That would be, whether I use... Somebody uses an NIV, an NASB, or a KJV. That now has become something that has come to the level of righteousness. God has not said that. There are other discussions relating to that, but that in and of itself is not the level of righteousness. You can, in your mind, think of a whole list of examples. That's what's being addressed here. Um, And it promotes self-righteousness. Okay. Uh, Lastly, this is it, and I'm just going to mention them. Uh, the danger of addition of rationalism. So mysticism and experience, traditions, when they come to have an, an improper place uh, in the life of an individual or a person. And the last is scripture and rationalism. Uh, let me just again mention these. Elevates human reason equal to a, equal awardy, authority with scripture and thus standing in judgment on it. The rationalism... This is the idea where we let philosophy, essentially the philosophy of the day, uh, come to have a, a greater, uh, or come to have a, uh, a, uh, a place of authority that is imposed upon Scripture that actually causes doubt then on Scripture. So one example of that could be, um, I guess maybe this wouldn't come under rationalism, this could come under another category, but I'll mention it here. The idea that scripture is not sufficient, you need the insights of modern medicine and psychology. Right? Psychology is what you need. Scripture is not sufficient. This would be an example of that, loosely. Um, Fails to account for the sin's effect on the mind. uh, Makes the human mind omniscient. Now let me just say this, actually, there's a note I want to make. There's a difference between rationality and reason and rationalism. Rationalism is a humanistic view regarding the source of authority that subjects Scripture to human reason. Um, the Sadducees of Matthew 22 through 23 are an example. They denied the supernatural. They denied angels, resurrection, and so on. Consequently, they were very much uh, worldly-minded. Um, they denied also life after death in certain books of the Torah and so on and so forth. They applied rationality to it. Rationality would be an example of uh, rationalism. Would be, uh, well, the Bible had to be perverted because it simply couldn't have been kept through all of those ages uh, by human authors because to err is uh, human, right? And so it's written through human authors and so uh, certainly there are errors. That's simple enough. That would be just one uh, example. That's rationalism. But you could argue against that very rationalism with a rational mind and looking at the evidence honestly and seeing what God has done. Uh, Denies the incomprehensibility of God and it lacks controls and truth. Becomes individualized and it destroys authority and trustworthiness of Scripture. Wow, there was a lot more to say on that, but... uh, 
Uh, we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time. So let me uh, pray, if I may. And then the next time we pick this up, we'll talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Father, thank you that you have given us your written word, that it can be kept, preserved, studied, considered, memorized, meditated on, communicated, disseminated over all of the earth. Thank you that your word stands as a sole authority and sufficiency in our lives. We do not have to be distracted and uh, caused to stumble from these attempts to add to it whether it be through cults and their added revelation of the Watchtower or the Book of Mormon and so on, or some enlightened teacher, whether it be through the attempts of the world, through rationalism, whether it be through inside the church itself and its form of mysticism and experience and so forth, we can have absolute confidence in your word when we study it and know it and know that you have spoken to us for uh, our good and for our growth and we thank you for that keep us protect our minds and grow us in our love for the truth and the love for your son we pray these things in the name of jesus amen